I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the January 2012 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. issue is headlined by an invited commentary entitled Perspectives on Cost-Effective Medicine and the Use of Cost-Effectiveness Analyses by K.T. Park and Associates. In these times, when Medicare and Medicaid expenditures are under the microscope of the bean counters, the statistical techniques of cost-effective analysis are being widely applied to inform funding decisions. It is a good idea for all of us to become conversant in these techniques so we can advocate appropriately for our patients. This review is a good place to start learning the lingo and learning the strengths and weaknesses of these methods of cost-effectiveness analysis. There is an invited review entitled Proton Pump Inhibitor Use in Infants, FDA Reviewer Experience by Chen and colleagues. As many of you are aware, the FDA convened an advisory committee in November of 2010 to evaluate the use of PPIs for GE reflux symptoms in infants. The resulting report indicated that in the few well-defined and well-designed studies of PPIs in infants with reflux, there was no benefit attributable to these medications. The current invited review is a commentary by several FDA staffers in which they lay out possible reasons for the lack of PPI efficacy and discuss the side effects of PPIs reported in the studies included. These authors agree with the FDA Advisory Committee report that PPIs should not be administered to otherwise healthy infants to treat the symptoms of GE reflux unless there is firm evidence of real acid-induced disease, such as esophagitis. The first original article in Gastroenterology is entitled Celiac Disease Diagnosis, Espigan 1990 Criteria or Need for a Change, Results of a Questionnaire. The Espigan Working Group on Celiac Disease Diagnosis surveyed all Espigan members to evaluate the current diagnostic practices for childhood celiac disease and to find out if the practitioners felt a need for revised diagnostic standards. 95 valid questionnaires were returned from 28 countries. Only 12% of responders said they actually complied with the 1990 diagnostic standards. Non-compliance was mainly in the form of ignoring the 1990 requirement that a gluten challenge be performed before confirming the diagnosis. About 90% of responders felt that revision of the 1990 diagnostic criteria was warranted. 44% thought small bowel biopsy should be eliminated in symptomatic children with positive IgA, TTG, or endomesial antibodies, especially in DQ2, DQ8 positive patients. In non-symptomatic cases detected by positive anti-TTG or endomesial antibodies, about 30% felt that small bowel biopsy was unnecessary. 42% of responders felt that HLA typing should be a standard part of the diagnostic evaluation. Most responders felt that gluten challenge was not necessary to the diagnosis. 
Based on these opinions, the committee has revised the criteria for diagnosis of celiac disease as reported later in this issue. The next article is entitled Horizontal Distribution of the Fecal Microbiota in Adolescents with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Gosjeski and colleagues. It is assumed that there are several distinct populations of commensal colonic bacteria occupying different microenvironments located in the lumen, above, and directly adjacent to the mucous layer of the colon mucosa. These authors examined the separate populations of fecal microbiota in the colon of adolescents with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and controls. Stool samples were collected from 22 patients with Crohn's disease, 12 patients with ulcerative colitis, and 24 controls during preparation for colonoscopy. Three sets of samples were taken in each patient, one just before, one during, and one after the prep, under the assumption that the first sample would look at organisms in the lumen, and the second two samples would look at organisms living closer and closest to the colonic surface cells. Colon biopsies were obtained and were also studied. Samples were examined by culture and by fluorescent in situ hybridization. Mucin degradation assay was performed on organisms from each layer sampled. The authors had some difficulty with the fish analyses, so the results are mainly from cultures. Their major finding was an interesting heterogeneity of the flora from the three layers in the patients with IBD and a relative uniformity in the composition of bacteria from the three layers of the controls. Characteristic patterns of species were identified for each study group. The authors found that the bacterial flora attached to the mucous layer in the ulcerative colitis group degraded significantly more mucus than controls. The authors feel that the distribution of microbiota in the colon of patients with IBD is indeed layered horizontally. The significance of this finding is unclear, and it further complicates our thinking about the microflora of the colon. What is clear from this study is that only in ulcerative colitis did the bacterial flora attached to the mucus layer exert mucolytic activity. The next article is entitled Thalidomide Use and Outcomes in Pediatric Patients with Crohn's Disease Refractory to Infliximab and Adalimumab by Felipe's and colleagues. These authors used a computerized database to identify 12 children with Crohn's disease who had failed conventional immunosuppression therapy and received thalidomide rescue therapy. Average age at diagnosis was 10 years and the average age at starting thalidomide was about 15 years. Eight patients had ileocolonic disease and four had both gastroduodenal and colonic disease. Five had strictures and seven had fistulas. Previous drug therapies included azathioprine or 6-MP in 11, methotrexate in 4, and anti-TNF biologics in all 12. After six months on thalidomide, plus other specific medications, the average Harvey Bradshaw index score improved. The mean prednisone dose decreased from 13.9 to 2.3 milligrams per day, and the average sedimentation rate normalized. Mean follow-up after starting thalidomide was 4.8 years, and during this time, compared to pretreatment, the mean number of hospitalizations and surgeries decreased significantly. Of the seven patients with fistulae, 
Five had complete closure, one had partial closure, and one showed no improvement. Adverse reactions were fairly common, with five of 12 developing peripheral neuropathy, two developing worsening Crohn disease, and one each with allergic reaction and dizziness. Peripheral neuropathy resolved in all five patients within three months of stopping thalidomide. Although this is a re retrospective case series, there's a lot of good information here on an important therapeutic question. The first original hepatology and nutrition article is entitled Manifestations and Evolution of Wilson Disease in Pediatric Patients Carrying ATP7B Mutation L708P by Peña Quintana and colleagues. The aim of this study was to characterize a group of 11 patients ages 3 to 13 years affected with Wilson disease on the island of Gran Canaria, Spain. Genetic, biochemical, and pathologic features together with their response to treatment and clinical evolution were analyzed. Genetically, the group was rather homogeneous with four homozygotes and five heterozygotes for the L708P mutation. Despite being initially screened because of asymptomatic hypertransaminasemia, all of the patients had some degree of liver damage that was never accompanied by neurologic manifestations. Hepatic damage was most severe in a compound heterozygote with a novel mutation, G1266W, affecting a motif in the ATP7B polypeptide that is highly conserved in similar proteins in many species. Ceruloplasmin, serum copper, and hepatic copper content had better diagnostic value than did urine copper excretion. All of the patients responded well to treatment with D-penicillamine, and no documented adverse reactions occurred. The patients in Gran Canaria constitute one of the largest groups of patients with Wilson disease with a high incidence of a single mutation allowing these authors to define the early clinical symptoms and the evolution of the disease in patients carrying the ATP7B L708P mutation. There is a very nice commentary on this paper by Stuart Tanner that puts the findings in perspective. The next article is entitled Human Milk Probiotic Lactobacillus Fermentum, CECT5716, reduces the incidence of gastrointestinal and upper respiratory tract infections in infants by Baldonado and colleagues. The aim of this randomized double-blind controlled study was to examine the effects of a follow-on formula containing lactobacillus fermentum on the incidence of infections in infants between the ages of 6 and 12 months. 215 Spanish infants were assigned randomly to either follow-on formula supplemented with L-fermentum plus galacto-oligosaccharide, or the same formula supplemented only with galacto-oligosaccharide. The main outcome was the incidence of infections for the six-month duration of the study. The infants taking lactobacillus supplemented formula had a 46% reduction in the incidence of gastrointestinal infections, a 27% reduction in the incidence of upper respiratory tract infections, and a 30% reduction in the total number of infections compared with controls. The authors state that administration of a follow-on formula with lactobacillus fermentum may be useful for preventing community-acquired GI and upper respiratory infections. There is an excellent commentary on this article by Vandenplas and Veerman-Wolters 
that points out the many confounding factors that make this kind of research difficult and prevent its immediate application to clinical practice. The next article is entitled Congenital Hepatic Fibrosis and Portal Hypertension in Autosomal Dominant Polycystic Kidney Disease by O'Brien and colleagues. Autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive polycystic kidney diseases are the most common hepatorenal fibrocystic diseases, also called ciliopathies. Characteristics of the liver disease associated with these disorders are quite different. Patients with autosomal recessive PKD have congenital hepatic fibrosis, often complicated by portal hypertension. In contrast, typical liver involvement in autosomal dominant PKD is polycystic liver disease and very rarely hepatic fibrosis. The goal of this paper was to describe the characteristics of the rare patient with congenital hepatic fibro fibrosis and autosomal dominant PKD. Eight patients from three families with autosomal dominant PKD were found to have hepatic fibrosis during an NIH study on ciliopathies. Data from these eight were combined with data from 15 previously reported patients with autosomal dominant PKD and congenital hepatic fibrosis from 11 families. The sex ratio was equal in the 19 patients, and portal hypertension was the main manifestation of congenital hepatic fibrosis. Hepatocellular function was preserved, and liver enzymes were largely normal. In all 14 families, hepatic fibrosis was not inherited vertically, that is, the parents of the index cases had PKD but did not have hepatic fibrosis, suggesting that modifier gene or genes might be acting. The three most recently identified families had pathogenic mutations in PKD1 and sequencing of the PKHD1 gene as a potential modifier did not reveal any mutations. The authors conclude that congenital hepatic fibrosis in autosomal dominant PKD is similar to congenital hepatic fibrosis in autosomal recessive disease, and that congenital hepatic fibrosis in this condition is caused by PKD1 mutations with probable contribution from non-sex-linked modifier genes. The next article is entitled Correlation of Vitamin E, Uric Acid, and Diet Composition with Histologic Features of Pediatric NAFLD by Voss and the members of the NASH Clinical Research Network Research Group. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the most common chronic liver disease of children in the United States. Although changes in diet are recommended to improve NAFLD, little is known about the influence of diet on histologic features of the disease. 149 children enrolled in the multi-center non-alcoholic steatohepatitis clinical research network had demographic, anthropometric, clinical, laboratory, and histological data stored, including the block brief food questionnaire. These subjects were grouped according to whether they had steatohepatitis with grading of histologic features according to NASH Clinical Research Network criteria. No significant dietary differences were found between the children with steatosis compared to those with steatohepatitis, including the fraction of dietary energy from fat, carbohydrate, or protein. Sugar-sweetened beverage consumption was low and did not correlate with histologic features. Uric acid, a surrogate marker for fructose intake, was significantly increased in children with NASH. 
For all groups, vitamin E consumption was insufficient compared with the recommended daily allowance. Median consumption of vitamin E was lower in children with higher grades of steatosis. Those consuming less vitamin C had increased ballooning degeneration. The authors conclude that the vitamin E deficient diet noted in these children may contribute to the pathophysiology of NAFLD. Although the reported sugar-sweetened beverage consumption was low, uric acid, which may reflect total fructose consumption, was significantly associated with NASH, as noted in previous studies. There are two clinical guidelines in this issue. The first is entitled Nutritional Strategy for Adolescents Undergoing Bariatric Surgery, Report of a Working Group of the Nutrition Committee of NASPIGAN and NACRI. Despite the increasing numbers of adolescents undergoing obesity surgery, evidence-based guidelines for postoperative nutritional management have not been published. The goal of this guideline was to provide consensus recommendations on how to assess, educate, nourish, and monitor the adolescent who has undergone obesity surgery. A multidisciplinary expert panel of three pediatric gastroenterologists, one psychologist, and three registered dietitians from the NASPIGAN Nutrition Committee and the National Association of Children's Hospitals and Related Institutions, with experience in nutrition and adolescent weight loss surgery, reviewed the medical literature for evidence-based nutritional strategies for patients undergoing bariatric surgery. An adolescent medicine physician was consulted for matters relating to reproductive health. In areas for which there was a lack of evidence to support the recommendations, best practice guidelines were used. There is good information in this paper to address questions regarding the preoperative educational pathway, postoperative diet progression, recognition of disordered feeding, female reproductive issues, and means of supporting the post-op adolescent in the college or post-high school educational environment. The second guideline is entitled European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition Guidelines for the Diagnosis of Celiac Disease from the Espigen Working Group on Celiac Disease Diagnosis. Since 1990, when the original diagnostic criteria were published for celiac disease by Espigan, tissue transglutaminase has been identified and the perception of celiac disease has changed from that of an uncommon enteropathy to a common multi-organ disease strongly dependent on the HLA haplotypes DQ2 and DQ8. After noting the near universal call for updated diagnostic criteria published in this issue of JPGN, the 17 members of the Espigen Working Group on uh, Celiac Disease Diagnosis used the Delphi process to develop new diagnostic criteria for two specific groups, children with symptoms suggestive of celiac disease and asymptomatic children at increased risk for celiac disease. The 2004 NIH Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality report and a systematic literature search on antibody tests for celiac disease from 2004 to 2009 was the basis for the evidence-based recommendations on, celi on celiac disease-specific antibody testing. In symptomatic children, the diagnosis of celiac disease rests on typical symptoms, positive serology and histology. If immunoglobulin A TTG antibody titers are greater than 10 times normal, 
then these guidelines offer the option of diagnosing celiac disease without duodenal biopsy by applying a strict protocol with further laboratory tests. In at-risk, non-symptomatic children, the diagnosis of celiac disease is based on positive serology and compatible duodenal biopsy. HLA-DQ2 and DQ8 testing is valuable because celiac disease is unlikely if both haplotypes are negative. To my knowledge, this is the first codification of diagnostic evaluation that actually omits intestinal biopsy. There's a short communication entitled, Are Immunoglobulin A Anti-Gliadin Antibodies Helpful in Diagnosing Celiac Disease in Children Younger Than Two Years? by Fucher and colleagues. In brief, after evaluation of the records of 4,122 children younger than two, the authors state that IgA antibodies against gliadin were of no benefit in diagnosing celiac disease and that the diagnosis should rest on IgA tissue transglutaminase antibodies or anti-endomesial antibodies. The last article is another short communication entitled Multi-Component School-Initiated Obesity Intervention in a High-Risk Hispanic Elementary School by Klish and colleagues. This is a sobering short report in which the authors compared obesity in two high-risk schools, one with an obesity intervention program and one without. They found no improvement in the incidence of obesity in the intervention school over one full school year. In fact, the incidence of obesity increased in the school with the obesity program. These authors state the obvious. Obesity is a complex issue, and just because a prevention program sounds good doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work. This concludes the JPGN podcast for January 2012. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the NASPGN website at naspigan.org. JPGN is the official journal of Espigan and NASPGN. The co-editors are Mel Heyman and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. <laughs>